be into intentional about your interactions with people, particularly for young leaders. The earlier that you can learn this, the better it's going to lay, provide that stable foundation for the rest of your career. For me, the intentionality in the interactions goes, okay, how do I want the person to feel at the end of that conversation? Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. Well, my guest today is Cliff Morgan, who served in the Royal Australian Air Force for almost six years as an Airfield Defence Guard, the Air Force's equivalent to the infantry. His service included an operational deployment to Baghdad, Iraq in 2008. On leaving full-time service, Cliff, by his own admission on the suggestion from his father, decided to give psychology a crack. That turned not only into an honours degree in psychology, but also a master's degree in organisational psychology a bit more than a crack by any measure. Now the Director and Principal of Lumion Consulting, Cliff and his team are highly sought after for their expertise in the areas of organisational development, equipping leaders to develop their people and delivering solutions that challenge mindsets and influence culture. Cliff has also returned to the Royal Australian Air Force as a personal psychologist, undertaking part-time service, delivering team and leadership coaching, resilience training and mindset coaching for pilots and aircrew and is also about to launch a book, The Coaching Leader. What I loved about our conversation was Cliff's humility and the great satisfaction he gets in helping others achieve success and making a difference. So Cliff Morgan, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me on, uh, Martin. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, look, a uh, question I always ask my guests first up is, how do you end up joining the service, in your case, the Royal Australian Air Force? Yeah, certainly. Look, I had a, a, a grandfather who was in the Air Force and uh, I had ultimately a grandfather, two uncles, three cousins and a brother who were all pilots. And so you might say flying is in the family blood. So I, I grew up wanting to be a, an Air Force fighter pilot. Unfortunately, my eyesight is, is not twenty twenty, and uh, back in those days, you weren't allowed to have corrective surgery and so uh, that kind of ruled that option out for me completely so when I finished school I actually started studying to be a high school history and drama teacher okay I got a bit of a fairly different path to go down but I got frustrated doing that and I thought I'd take 12 months off from uni and I decided to go and do they had the ready reserve scheme there with the airfield defense guard so you do 12 months do your your recruits and your IET training and serve out the remainder of your 12 months and, and then you go back and uh, you just kind of continue on as, as a reservist after that. And so that was my intention. And five and a half years later, I was uh, still in and loving it up from promotion and, and posting and all that sort of thing. So yeah, that's kind of how I came to join the Air Force. Yeah. For those that don't know, what's the role of an Air Force Defence Guard? Yeah, so Airfield Defence Guard, uh, AG or ADG, that's what they call for short. Basically, it's infantry skill set, but defending air bases. So we do a lot of the ground defence side of things for the Air Force. And that's, you know, defending the perimeter of, of air bases. But then it also goes into things like aircraft security operations. So if you think of the recent withdrawal of people out of Afghanistan, and we had our 
uh, teams going in there. We had teams of ADGs on those aircraft and they would, you know, once the, the C-17 hit the ground, then they would go out and perform, provide a perimeter around the aircraft and then also uh, provide security for, you know, the refugees of the personnel that are on, on board there. Mm. And also other things like close personnel protection and, you know, static defense and security and things like that mm. for Air Force related sort of missions and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's going back to sort of around that time in which you joined the Air Force. Who were your leadership heroes or influences growing up or early in your military career? Yeah, look, it's, I think growing up, a lot of it was, I think my, my dad had a massive influence on me. And, and that's really just around the kind of the self leadership and really education. My dad ultimately kind of, kind of grew up almost below the poverty line. His father was a, a minister and they didn't get paid a whole lot. And, so he made the decision at the age of 13, after he wasn't able to get piano lessons, to, he said, my kids are going to have the opportunities that I never had. And so he worked really hard and through education, pulled himself up, became a very successful doctor. And so the kind of the, the self-regulation, the discipline, the values of education and really self-leadership in order to achieve from that perspective mm-hmm. came from my dad. Mm-hmm. And I think from a, a military perspective, when I first joined up, my I had a, a really great combination between a rifle flight commander and my the, the flight sergeant that was there. So the commander was actually brand new straight out of uh, Duntroon. So the ground defense officers will go through with the infantry officers in at Duntroon. And so he was straight out of there. And he was, not only was he really good at the, kind of the self-leadership piece and said he maintained really high standard in himself, but he's smart enough to actually listen to his senior troop yeah. in the rifle flight. So, and again, that, that flight sergeant that we had was held himself to a really high standard. You know, it was, it was fitter than probably 90% of the rest of the, the rifle flight. And so the combination that they had there was really good and kind of very much um, role modeled what good leadership and not just good leadership from a, you know, I'm a leader and I'm going to lead, but I think the the dynamic there between the senior leaders and kind of that leadership team Mm. was really good and and kind of laid a really solid foundation for me to, you know, just think about witness and and reflect on and, and really set the benchmark or gave me a frame of reference is probably a great way to put it around what good leadership looked like. Hmm. Proves that I guess um, you know leadership is a lot about sort of setting the example and creating the environment in which to thrive. Yeah, very much so. You know, I'm a big believer in kind of as you said, create the environment, right? And, you know, you particularly as a psychologist, the first thing you get learnt is that you can't fix people, you can't make people change, all that sort of thing. But what you can do is create an environment that is conducive to hmm. people doing what they need to do or making the change that they need to make. Yeah. So I think you're spot on there, Martin. Yeah. Your time in the Air Force sort of uh, first time around as a, an, an AGI, mm-hmm. saw you with operational service in Baghdad in Iraq. Yep. What was that like? Yeah, it was interesting. So, you know, I only had the one deployment as an AGI and, and that was actually doing SEPTEC. And so I was attached to 7RAR as an in infantry platoon riding security for the Australian Embassy over in the Green Zone in Baghdad. So it's interesting that, you know, I, I trained my whole career to do one thing, which was defend air bases and never actually got to do that thing. But, you know, providing the, the security over there in, in Baghdad was, you know, 
a great experience to have. You know, I would love to have been there prior to, you know, Gulf War One. You look at some of the the city that, you know, the majority of it was kind of half in, in rubble, right, and in ruins, but you look around at some of those buildings, you're like, wow, it's just the architecture that was here and just things that you don't see anywhere in the Western world, really. But, yeah, look, it was a, a really, you know, it was an interesting experience in terms of interacting with personnel from other nations mm. and interacting with Iraqi locals as well mm. and, you know, really kind of broadened my perspective and, and gave me a sense that, hey, I've actually done the job for real, yeah. which is, is one of those things that, uh, you know, a lot of people, particularly in the civilian world, don't understand and they think, oh, you know, you guys all want to go to war. You're kind of warmongers and, and all that sort of stuff. Well, it's not really. It's you just want to do the job that you're trained to do. Yeah. And, you know, for some of my friends that are, are doctors or in the medical thing, it's like you know, training to be a doctor but never actually treating a patient. Mm. And so, you know, it was. I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. Yeah. My sense is when people join the military is that they join to serve not knowing what that will look like and not when they will be called upon to actually, in that moment, to actually serve their country. And invariably, you don't get a choice, do you? No, that's right. You know, there's a, a lot of people kind of in the, I guess, the cohort or generation, like, you know, before uh, I came through that, you know, and even kind of you know, before Timor, there was very little in terms of operational service. Hmm. And even while we did have, you know, from the, the ground defence world and the Air Force, we did have contingents go over to, uh, East Timor and that sort of thing. It was definitely not, you know, the all of our kind of now mustering and, and world. And, you know, since I, I left and, you know, Afghanistan kind of kicked off and you know, a lot more of our mustering people in, in that world have, have had operational experience. But before then, yeah. you know, it was a bit hit and miss. So, you know, as you say, didn't get to choose, didn't get to do what I trained to do, but, yeah. but still had the opportunity to serve and, and grateful for that. Yeah. Reflecting back on that time in Baghdad, what, what were your lessons of around that self-leadership that were relevant to that scenario? Yeah, look, it, it is interesting. I think there's a piece there around I tried to do some study while I was over there as well and I thought, you know, it's a great opportunity. There's not going to be all the social distractions and those sorts of things. So, so let's do some study. And, you know, very soon into the deployment, I kind of gave that away. Mm. And so there's a piece there around... I don't know, expectations. And I guess one of the things that I have struggled with my entire life, and then this is kind of a self-leadership uh, piece as well, is spreading myself too thin and trying to do mm. too many things. Mm -hmm. And and so the, the ability to focus just on, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this well, and recognizing that if I try and do everything, then I'm not going to do anything well. Yeah, And I think that's a, a really good lesson for a leader you know, particularly if you're coming into a new role. For me, I was going into a new environment. I didn't know what to expect from, you know, in Baghdad and, and all that sort of stuff, operating with the army. It was a whole lot of different things that were unknown and unclear and uncertain. And I'm like, okay, cool, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And one of the things that um, I think I work with leaders now and, and we are going into environments and contexts that are unknown, it's, it's keep it simple. Mm. Don't try and do too much too soon um, mm. because you will – kind of not achieve anything or as much as you like and then that, you know, that kind of sends you, you think you're a bad leader and you're not doing well and that sends you in a kind of a, a downward spiral mentally and, and that's not good for the people that you're leading, right? Mm. So it's probably a, a good lesson that came out of that time. Yeah. 
Because it reminds me that, you know, when you go into an environment like that, clarity about what you're there for and purpose and focus is really important. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and I think there's plenty of uh, plenty of times in history when you look through some of the military operations in the past that have gone awry and you could put it down to, hey, you know, you, you weren't sticking to the mission. You weren't clear about what you were doing and trying to do too many things at, at once. So, yeah. yeah, you're right. We know it doesn't go well all the time. What was one of the biggest lessons from your time in the uh, in the service the first time around? So from a is it, are we talking about a poor leadership perspective? Yeah, if you, from a leadership perspective, or yeah, whatever perspective makes sense to you. Yeah, look, I look, I think I reflect on my time, particularly from a leadership perspective in the military, and and I say I've worked with some of the best leaders that I know, and I'll gladly follow them into battle and take a bullet for them, and then I've also worked with some of the worst leaders. And, you know, I'll often joke that I would gladly throw a grenade under their bed while they slept. But I think there's two kind of from a a when things don't go well perspective. Actually, there was a couple of, there was a a junior officer and a sergeant that we were uh, serving under in Baghdad on that deployment that actually got sent home for bastardization. And so that obviously had a number of impacts broader. And so, again, kind of seeing... There was actually a point there where I was actually more concerned about how tired some of our own people were and handling live weapons in that situation than I was from either enemy or IDF or, or anything, any other uh, kind of threats in that environment. So seeing the destructive kind of nature of poor leadership in, in that environment is a big lesson. And the, the other one, I, I guess, was in my reserve career after I left full time, uh, we had a a particular leader that or change in in leadership at the, the senior NCO kind of level. And what was a really effective, you know, bordering on high performing team in the context that it was in, kind of just got pulled apart by that one change of leader and different attitude and changing things for the sake of changing things and doing things his way. So he got to do what he wanted and didn't value people and all those sorts of things that you would associate with a poor leader and you know, really what had been operating really well and, and quite in a high-performing capacity for a number of years just got dismantled in a matter of months mm. because there were reserves involved and kind of they all didn't come back, Yeah, which is, you know, the, their prerogative mm. in, in that environment. So, yeah, I talk about, you know, me personally, a, a wage against perpetuation of poor leadership Yeah, and because I think poor leaders – Often people will look to them and say, well, that's the leadership standard, right? And so therefore they just do what they see. Mm. And I've seen the destructive nature of poor leadership too many times, yeah. uh, which is why I'm passionate about you know, creating great leaders. Yeah, there is in that environment a need to calibrate, isn't it? When we're creating that culture that we want, you need to mm. calibrate what you want and what your expectations are, you know, and, and in demonstrative ways sometimes by correcting people not in a public necessary environment, but actually really saying, hey, here's the line. This is where you need to be. What's getting in the way? Mm. Yeah, no, I fully agree. Mm. Your transition from service to being a coming a psychologist, what was the catalyst for time to leave the Air Forces from an agi perspective, finishing that first career? Yeah. So, you know, as I kind of mentioned how I got into the Air Force, it was never going to be a long-term 30-year career choice for me. Uh, it was always going to be a, a temporary thing. 
And while I stayed a lot longer than I initially intended, and I was still fully enjoying it, right? I, I was looking forward to the promotion. I was looking forward to posting. would have enjoyed the next posting that I was slotted for. But I knew that the longer I stayed in, the harder it would be for me to get out and do something else. And, you know, the risk of institutionalization and just becoming too used to the, the structure, I guess, of the military, which has its pros and its cons. And so I made the decision to get out. Now, at that stage, I didn't have a plan, which is, you know, not something that I advocate. I, you know, once I got out, I did a piece of research around, interviewed a whole lot of veterans, right, right, you know, right around from, you know, junior airmen all the way up to, I even interviewed um, Jim Wallace. Yeah. So was he a Brigadier General? Yeah. And so basically out of that interview, there was the three things that was going to lead to a successful transition. One was having a plan. One was, you know, leaving on your own accord. Mm. And the third one was having a good, strong social network outside of yeah. the military. Yeah. And if you had those three things, then everybody was, you know, having a relatively good and successful transition. One or more of those things weren't at play, then often people struggled. Mm. So I definitely didn't have a plan when I, I left, but I did have a really strong social network outside of the military. So that, that really did help me. Mm. And, you know, as I was kind of going through that season, my dad, again, kind of sort of suggested to me that, hey, why don't you try psychology? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I don't have anything else better to do, so <laughs> I'll give it a crack. And, and look, I've never looked back. Absolutely kind of love the profession, love working with people and, and specifically leaders. Mm. And, yeah, it's been a great ride. I reckon your father probably knows you pretty well if he said, you know, why don't you try psychology and your mindset was, I'll give it a crack. It was. Uh, it's interesting, Martin, in that when I left school, he tried to get me to do psychology then. Oh, right. And I said, no, the only people that become psychologists are those that are so broken that they learn how to become, <laughs> you know, how to fix themselves by learning how to fix other people. Yeah. I still maintain there's a few people in the profession for that reason, but I have no but look, you know, again, he suggested it, you know, six years later when I got out. And as you say, it was, it's definitely the right choice for me. Yeah. Yeah. We've all got work to do somehow, somewhere. Yep. Sometimes we need to become a psychologist, I guess, to do it. <laughs> so, um, you embark on psychological, psychology studies and mm -hmm. gain that endorsement as an organizational psychologist. Mm -hmm. You also went back to the Air Force to do some reserve psychology work as well. Yeah. So, you know, eight years after I started, I kind of finished all my psych training. It's a bit of a long journey to become a, a fully endorsed organizational psychologist. So, but yeah, once I was registered as a psych, I went back and uh, commissioned into the Specialist Reserve of the Air Force. So, you know, whenever I put the uniform on these days, it's as an officer mm -hmm. and I'm doing psych stuff. I'm not... Uh, no longer handling weapons or doing weapons instruction or anything, those those sorts of things. Yeah. And what does that work involve and what does the Air Force need psychologists for? Yeah, well, so psychology in the Air Force is a little different to the other two services mm. in that they have made the distinction between organisational psychology and clinical psychology. So Army you know, and Navy uh, kind of have the general psychologist and the psychologists uh, in those two services will do 
counseling, mental health training, mental health screening, and, and all those sorts of things, as well as some of the organizational type work. Whereas what we call personnel psychologists in Air Force, we don't do mental health. We don't do screening or treatment or counseling in any way. So our assessment or our work really is to help with people capability and, and performance. And so that can look anything from, you know, doing some of the administrative assessments that come through and does this person actually, you know, are there any psychological factors preventing administrative action being taken or anything like that? Uh, Not from a mental health side of things, but Mm. from a performance side of things. Mm. We do, you know, things like working with commanders around their, their, what we call snapshot in the Air Force, but some of the the broader cultural type stuff and, and unit performance. I was listening to one of your previous episodes with Mel Harris. Yeah, Mel Harris. That's right. And she was talking about the systems at place in the workplace. And and so often, I think that is one of the distinctions between an organizational psychologist rather than a, a clinical psychologist, where clinical psychs are often trained to treat the person in front of them. Where org psychs, we look at the workplace system as a whole, and that's kind of what we're trained to do mm. more specifically. Mm. And so we do all those sorts of things. I was heavily involved with the Air Force Leadership Coaching Program, mm-hmm. and so providing coaching skills and coaching training to to Air Force leaders. And some of the cool stuff is the Performance Enhancement Program. So it's performance psychology with aircrew predominantly. Mm. And helping them to, you know, stay sharp and, and drop bombs faster, more accurately at, yeah. at Mac Two or that sort of thing. But that, I mean, that that's pretty cool. I, I spent a fair bit of time with the air-to-air refuelers and the, mm. the trainers in there, or the trainees in there. Obviously, it's a pretty. You've got millions of dollars of aircraft trying to dock, you know, handle the boom correctly and and dock it with mm. a fast jet. So we were. I spent a bit of time working with the guys down there at uh, 33 Squadron. Yeah, it's something about, I guess, you know, this is, there are sort of pros and cons, I guess, to the pop psychology that we see, you know, readily available to us right now. But I do have a view that when we know better, we do better. Mm. When we're aware that we actually, this is what the psychological sort of body of knowledge would say about this scenario, that's actually useful because it, it actually increases our awareness of what may be going on or to pay attention to something that may be getting in the way of performance. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I fully agree. I remember very in my early days as a psychologist, I, I spent a lot of time talking to more senior psychs and, and getting their perspective on the world. And I remember talking to, I believe it was George Riddler, who has done a lot of work with the Australian swim team mm-hmm. and she, I think she was the, the lead psychologist for the Australian Olympic team in, in the last Olympic. But she was telling me that so often you can tell an athlete or you can tell you know anyone, a leader, this is what you have to do to get the results that you want. And that will get short-term change. But it's not until you explain, hey, this is the psychology behind it. This is what the science says. Mm. This is what's actually happening in the brain and why you need to do what you do. Mm that's when people get the long-term behavior change that's required in to get the sustained results, not just the short-term ones, it's the sustained results that we always want. Yeah. So, yeah, you're completely right. It's trying to explain the, the, the science and what's actually going on. And, again, it's the why behind what you want, right? Mm. And it's almost, you know, 
kind of relates back to Simon Sinek for those that know him and the start with why piece. Hmm. It's, it's all tied up in that sense of purpose, I guess, which yeah. drives sustained commitment and action. Yeah. That sustained commitment is so important, isn't it, for, you know, organisations. It's recognising that, you know, it's a consistency that will actually result in sort of sustained performance and actually elevating performance over time. Yeah, uh, one of the key messages that, you know, I kind of promote when I'm working with leaders is consistency builds stability Mm. and uh, you need a stable platform in order to build a peak performance, you know, and Mm. uh, it was definitely a message that I pushed during, uh, I guess, COVID and the initial stages of of COVID. And while there was so much uncertainty and so much instability, have a look at what you can do consistently and provide consistency to your people and that's going to help you navigate all the uncertainty. Yeah. And in managing change or driving change in an organisation, often we we miss out on that sort of first step of creating stability in the organisation. Sometimes it's so unstable that all of our efforts sort of, what with a great expense, can often sort of land on, you know, sort of rocky ground, I suppose, and, and never, mm. never actually uh, germinate. Yeah, I've got a, a close friend of mine, Dr. Pete Stebbins, who talks about when you're trying to sell change, you should be selling change as boring. Right. You know, really what you want to do is say that, hey, change is this much of the picture and highlight all the stuff that's staying the same, that's staying consistent. Mm-hmm. And so, because so many people, when, you know, we have this negative bias and we interpret things and we catastrophize and when things are uncertain and unknown, we fear it and we kind of blow it up bigger than what it actually is. Mm. And so when you're introducing change, I talk about reduce the threat and highlight the reward. Mm. And really you kind of highlight, hey, all this is staying the same. All this is consistent. It's really just this that is that is changing. And therefore people's perception of change being really big kind of shrinks and therefore it's not as fearful and they're more, more willing to kind of accept the change and then implement. So... Yeah. So alongside, I guess, or part of the landscape of your practice now as an as a organisational psychologist, of course, was to form your own consulting business. What's your focus in that business and who you're working with? Yeah, look, uh, you know, our, our focus is really working with, with leaders and helping them achieve their potential and perform at their peak. You know, and, and really what we're trying to do, I've got a, a real focus on not just equipping the individual leader or developing the individual leader that's in front of me but kind of looking through them and and to their team right and you know the vision for our our business looming consulting is all about creating great leaders who are able to go and create more great leaders who go and do the same Mm. and so it's equipping leaders to develop their people to lead in a way that develops the people Mm. and also they can equip the people that they lead to go and equip more leaders as well. So mm. I talk about that being an, a form of exponential influence or exponential leadership. Mm-hmm. And that, so, you know, I spend a lot of time coaching. I spend a lot of time uh, training leaders to coach their people. Mm-hmm. And everything I, I do is kind of, okay, here I'm, I'm teaching you. I'm working with you as a leader. Mm. Who are you going to teach? You know, how are you, you know, what, what do you need in order to take that concept and actually teach it to your people mm. so that they can go and teach it to, the people that they lead, either currently or in the future. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Because we, 
a lot of the people in this space are, you know, educating others and, you know, it's one thing to sort of share information and knowledge. It's even, you know, give them some experiential activity. But actually, at the end of the day, it does come down to action. Mm. What are you actually going to do about this? Yeah. What's going to get in the way of that? What are the next steps? And, you know, what's the accountability around that and taking that action? Yeah, very much so. And that's needed to, you know, ultimately, again, it's back to that sustained commitment, sustained performance. Mm. You know, the accountability piece is an important piece there. But look, I'm, I'm a big believer, Martin, in that, you know, leaders have uh, almost like a, a, a primary responsibility to achieve results and performance, right? But mm-hmm. I would say that the, the almost it's almost a bigger responsibility while it may be under the surface a little bit, but it's probably more valuable, more important that leaders actually develop capability. You know, I, I have a book coming out at the moment and I open that with this analogy of a pilot. And, you know, I was talking to my brother who is an, an airline pilot. He's a first officer for Qantas. And he talks about the, the captain of the aircraft. He's like, the best captains are not the ones that just focus on their responsibility of getting the passengers in the aircraft from point A to point B safely. The best captains are those who enable the first officer to get the aircraft and the passengers from point A to point B safely and therefore develop more captains for the the airline mm. rather than just, you know, keep a first officer in that seat. Mm. And so I'm a big believer that the more capability, both at the individual and at the collective level, that a leader can create as they generate performance the more valuable those leaders then become to the organization that they serve. Yeah. So I, again, hence on the big focus, I guess, on, on my practice in terms of equipping leaders to develop individuals and capability more generally. Yeah. It's almost a characteristic, isn't it, of, of high-performing organizations There's the fact that they are developing the next generation, that they are working on developing that next group of people to come up without fear of the fact they're going to take their jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I had a conversation with a with another guest a, a couple of months ago where we talked about the fact that if somebody actually, if you've got a good culture and you develop somebody and they decide to leave, they will actually come back with the opportunity to go and develop outside. Yep. If you've created that culture where they, you know, they want to come back, but they just need to go out and get more experience and maybe take a few more steps before they come back in. Yeah, 100%. You know, and I've worked with a number of clients where that's the case and you know, they're really successful clients. They're kicking a whole lot of goals, both you know, on the financial and performance metrics and all those sorts of things, but also on the people metrics. People love working there. Hmm. And you know, you're right, they, they go away and they come back. And you know, what's really encouraging, I think, is, is to see that um, you know, the ADF is kind of starting to take a bit of an approach. Hmm where that is a bit more of an option, listening to your episode with uh, Shamsa Lee, who's currently doing that. Yeah. You know, uh, I know Shamsa from, from my time in Air Force and right. she's a, a great young lady and uh, an amazing leader and, you know, she's now still technically employed by Air Force but out, you know, working for Deloitte, getting that experience and hmm. and looking to take that back into Air Force at some point. So yeah, I think it, the more organisations that kind of have that, that kind of mindset, I guess, around developing capability, developing people and, and allowing them to leave and, and welcoming them back, I think the better. 
You mentioned your book before, The Coaching Leader. It's coming out later this year. What was the catalyst for the book? Yeah, look, it's uh, again, it's very much around the sort of the themes that I've been talking around, around developing leaders. And I do a lot of uh, coaching myself as, you know, I'm a leadership expert and an executive coach. And so I, the coaching skill set, right, is all about essentially equipping people to learn, helping them to learn and making them aware and kind of facilitating the growth in them so that they can go and, you know, achieve their, their goals and overcome their obstacles and challenges and identify their own solutions and all that sort of stuff. And I've seen it time and time again when leaders coach, then they achieve amazing results, right? And that's For me, coaching is probably the best mechanism for leaders to actually develop capability. And, you know, the beautiful thing about coaching is you can do it day to day, you know, and uh, that's the kind of the tagline of the book, right, is essential skills for you to enhance your leadership and develop your people every day. So many people traditionally will think that leadership development is kind of like an off-site thing or you go away for a two-week course or you've got to take people offline in order to do leadership development. And that, you know, is not further from the truth. If, if you have coaching skills, then everything you do as a leader can become a development opportunity if you're intentional about it. Yeah. And so I talk to people about, hey, if you've got to make a decision, all right, call someone in and say, hey, this is a scenario. What would you do in this thing? And then you start coaching them. You say, hey, well, what's the outcome that you'll be up? What are the considerations that you're, you're doing? You know, what are the different options that you've got? What decision would you make? Mm. And if you think about that as a leader, right, it's so beneficial because for your, your team member that you've just pulled in and you've just coached, you have given them one insight into the next level up. You've given them an insight into the way that somebody at a higher level thinks, which means you're kind of lifting the strategic, you're developing strategic thinking. You've broadened their horizons. And, but you've also had the opportunity to kind of one gauge where they're at, right? And so you know from a, a development perspective where you need to invest in that particular individual. But also you get to really bounce ideas off them and often so often in doing that you get new information or a different perspective that you hadn't considered yourself so you actually have you can make a more informed decision as a leader and so it enhances your own you know leadership and decision making from from that perspective but it's also developing your team right mm. you know the the other thing i say is when when your people come to you and they've got a problem and you most leaders will what do you do? Well, you give them the answer, you give them the solution. And, you know, that makes you feel good. It's quick. It's easy. You get the solution that you want. But at the same time, the next time that team member has a problem, well, where are they going to go? Mm. To the source of their last solution. Yeah. So you then become the bottleneck to solve all the problems in your team. Mm. Whereas if you come and you say, well, hey, you know, what are you trying to achieve here? What are the different options that you've got? What are the considerations that you need? What do you think the best course of action is? Mm. And you're just asking questions, you're coaching them. Then they learn over time, they learn to do that process themselves. And yeah. and ultimately they can come to you and say, hey, boss, we've got had this issue. I've thought about it. These are the different options. Mm. I think this is the best way forward. What do you reckon? And you just get to say, very well, crack on. Yeah. And you're not solving their problems. They've already done it themselves. Yeah. Yeah, once you create that space, they do think for themselves and they bring that discretionary effort. And, in fact, they they appreciate – I mean, they're actually more self-actualized in their role, aren't they, in terms of yeah. enjoyment, yeah. et cetera, which contributes to retention and all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, and, and that's an important part in to today's market, you know, that war for talent and people people expect to be developed these days. You know, the research tells us that, you know, the generations, you know, what is it, Z and Alpha or whatever we're coming, the, the people coming through at the moment, younger people, you know, my generation are down, I'll say. Yeah. You know, we, we want more development opportunities. and mm. But the research is actually really specific and it says that we want that from our immediate supervisor. Mm. We don't necessarily want that from some external party that doesn't know our context or we don't want to be sent away for courses and all those things are wonderful. Mm. But we want to be developed by the person we have relationship with and our, our leader. And so, you know, coaching skills are the way that leaders do that in the most effective and efficient, you know, uh, means possible. Yeah, we're definitely on the same page there. And I can't help but think that, you know, we leverage the combined intelligence of our team and expertise in our team when we actually adopt that style. Very much so. Mm. Yeah, I love the, you know, even Jim Mattis right at the top. He said, I spend about 15 minutes a day commanding and uh, the rest of the time I'm coaching. Yeah, and I think that's a great attitude. I, I think it's a great default response for a leader. I and mean, coaching is not right for every situation mm. and every circumstance, but I think it's a great default approach mm. for a leader, and only stray from that when the situation dictates. Yeah. So if there was somebody in front of you right now that was, you know, embarking a junior person that was just embarking on stepping up to leadership, I guess, and you know, getting that first opportunity to lead others, what would be the top two, three things you would say to them in terms of where they need to focus? Oh, so so many, Martin. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I think... I knew that would be the case. But. Yeah, you know, keep learning, keep casting vision, ask for feedback regularly from the people, get a mentor. Yeah. I think probably the biggest one though, Martin, that I would say is be into intentional about your interactions with people, hmm. particularly for young leaders the earlier that you can learn this, the the better it's going to lay, provide that stable foundation for the rest of your career. Mm. And by that, I mean, as you walk into an interaction, it's like, hey, what's the outcome that I want here? What do I need to, you know, what's the message I need to communicate? Or, you know, what's the, what do I need to tell this person? And then a lot of leaders will stop there and they'll, they'll go, okay, cool. I want to achieve this. I've got to tell them this. Just go and do it, right? But for me, the intentionality in the interactions goes, okay, how do I want the person to feel at the end of that conversation? Hmm. And, uh, you know, if I want them to feel supported and valued and empowered to go away and do what they need to, then I've got to deliver that message and have that conversation in a very intentional way. You know, if I, I can definitely say, hey, this is what we need, you need to do this, and this is the time frame that you need to go, hmm. go do it. And be very direct and blunt. And, and, you know, there are times when we can get away with that in the military, but we've kind of got to learn that, hey, that's not always appropriate. And even when we are in the military Mm. or whether or not we're in the boardroom now, you know, a lot of executive leaders that I I speak with and work with, you kind of have that same concept, right? They've just got so much on their plate. They're so fast and results oriented. They can be even more direct than some of the military leaders that I've worked with. And they have no kind of regard for how the you know, how people feel, I guess, at the end. And they have no intention of making them feel bad, Mm. but because they don't consider it, because they're not intentional about the way they have conversations, Mm. so often it leaves a a wake of destruction, I guess, behind them. Mm. And I learned that the hard way. So if Mm. you can learn that early, (laughs) (laughs) it'll be good. Yeah. I mean, COVID highlighted where 
businesses had not made effort to actually develop their teams or get people to think, wasn't it? I mean, because mm-hmm. then everybody's looking at the boss, waiting for them to make a decision when it came to all of those challenges that came up immediately when COVID started. And it, it highlighted where there was good businesses that had focused on that and where others had not. And whatever your strength or challenge was, it was exacerbated. Yeah, 100% agree. You know, I've got some clients that had done They've done exceptionally well throughout COVID and that's because they value their people. And, yeah. you know, then there are other businesses that I know that, you know, they've actually been decimated or they found it really hard because they've had people leave or they've had tried to make decisions that are based on, you know, the financial security of the organisation mm. and some of which are completely the right decisions, but they haven't considered the people in the way that they implemented those decisions. Mm. And as a result of that, they've left or, you know, they've, They've just sat there and, and done not a whole lot and not showed a whole lot of initiative or, or proactivity mm. throughout that period, which is obviously, you know, caused uh, performance issues. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the book, The Coaching Leader. Mm. Where can people get a copy of that? So it's available for pre-order. It'll, it'll be, uh, you know, I'll have uh, copies that will, you know, be released and, and whatnot in early November, mm-hmm. but available for pre-order now. And the best place to get that is uh, cliffordmorgan.com.au. Yeah, great. And just follow the bouncing ball there. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Cliff, it's been great to chat. I'm sure there was many, many more places we could go with regards to leadership and what you're doing in your practice that, you know, good on you for doing that. It's what businesses need. And, you know, I, in my own work, sort of talking about how that coaching leadership style can be a game changer is, mm. you know, really important. I, in my own time in command, it was less than 5% of the time was spent directing and checking people. It was it was that sort of sitting back in other styles of leadership that, that really made the difference to the culture in the ship as well. Yeah. No, excellent. Yeah. So, look, um, we're going to finish up with rapid-fire questions. Not always rapid fire answers. Yep. But fill in the blank. Uh, leadership is blank. Uh, what I'd say is uh, creating change through people. I define leadership as influencing a group of people in order to create a change necessary in order to achieve an agreed upon outcome. Yeah. You know, even from the most basic form of leadership in leading one person from point A to point B, there's a, mm. a change in location, there's a change in state. The person's got to walk, go from standing to walking. There's a change of intention from to move from A to B. Mm. So leadership is all about change. Mm-hmm. Great. I love that explanation. What's your go-to book on leadership other than your own? You'll, uh, yeah. you'll, <laughs> you'll like this one, Martin. Turn the Ship Around by David Marquet. Yeah, of course, yeah. What a great book. If any of the listeners haven't got that book or seen his TED Talk, you definitely need to do that. Highly recommend it. Yeah. I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. How to tailor my approach to different people in different contexts, mm-hmm. I think. And this kind of goes back to being intentional in your interactions. And, you know, I talk to a lot of leaders around context, right? You take you can be a good leader in one context unless you can adapt to a new context then, you know, you're going to fail from a leadership perspective. And Winston Churchill is probably the best example of that. Brilliant wartime leader, but a failed post-war prime minister. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Being adaptive, so important. Mm. Next question, you get a call from a team member. Crisis just erupted in your company business. What are your first words to that person? Just breathe. (laughs) Take a moment. And then I'd be asking questions to help them take perspective. Yeah. You know, crisis is important. You've got to deal with it. But so often we make it worse than what it actually is. So helping people zoom out mm. 
and kind of look at the bigger picture mm-hmm. is my approach. Yeah, great. And lastly, a go-to quote on leadership has had most influence on you personally or your leadership style. Yeah, look, I'm a, a big fan of quotes. And so there's a whole lot to, to choose from. Probably I'm a big fan of John Maxwell and have been since a, a teenager. So, you know, a couple of his his quotes, everything rises and falls on leadership is a good one. And the other one is reflection turns experience into insight. Mm. And so I guess kind of finishing off where we started around that self-leadership, mm. if you can reflect on your experiences, then you can learn from them. You can identify the insight and you can apply that as you move forward. Yeah. Well, Cliff, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for sharing so many of your insights. Congratulations on the book. Go well. And yeah, look forward to keeping in touch given we live in the same town. Yeah. Thank you very much, Martin. Look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.